Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the BSUIT podcast, the audio-only virtualization show that doesn't need to dress up for Halloween. Join me, Chris Dearden, and my fellow co-hosts, Ed Serwin and Christian Moan. Our guest today is Yup Pisco. Yup is a blogger at virtuallifestyle.nl and a consulting architect for a Dutch system integrator. Hi Yup, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, how are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Um, I guess we probably start off with our, our big headline, um, and that's, I, I believe, some congratulations for in order. Thanks. Uh, for, for those who might, might not have seen it, but Yup is one of the, uh, the new brand of uh, VCDXs. Um, and has a, a pretty special number. He's VCDX101. That doesn't mean he's the basic one. That means he's just the first of the, uh, I believe, 100 was a, a target to, that they were trying to hit this, this year, and they've uh, smashed through that target. Yep, they, um, they have. Yeah, that's, it seems to have uh, gone pretty well. Um, sorry, t- tell us what you can about it. Um, well, it's, it's a very long, long process. Uh, it, it took me about four or five months from start to finish. Um, I had about uh, I worked about 150 hours on the design itself. I used two specific customer designs, um, and I never should have done that. I never should have combined those two designs. It was way way more work than I expected. Is that because the underlying requirements um, didn't necessarily go in the right in the same directions, so that you know, it would have been fairly obvious to an external um, auditor of that design that it was right. two designs? Or? Yeah, it was two separate designs. It was one stretch clustering design, and it was one uh, fairly simple design uh, with a lot of Citrix and FVMs. Okay. Um, and this, this brings me around to something uh, I was I was thinking about. Um, I recently attended a, a conference with a, a lot of uh, Citrix guys on it. Yeah. And, and they're very much their their feeling was present that that you know you do things like deploying local storage. So when you're trying to do that design, are you trying to design for the infrastructure or are you designing for the application? Because uh, obviously. It seems that the easiest way to do a big Zen app deployment on VMware is just to stick with local storage. I mean, you might not even necessarily bother clustering um, because you're not going to use any HA or DRS unless you obviously there's shared nothing live migration. But I don't think anyone's going to bother live migrating a Zen app server uh, unless they absolutely have to. So, what's the you could design do a great application design. The infrastructure one would be probably not much to talk about, or is that just? Something that you fed in as part of a larger, uh, to larger scale of the whole stack. Well, and I, I do agree that uh, if if you're designing for Zenith uh, alone, you you don't need as much features on the uh, uh, underlying infrastructure. Uh, in, in in my specific design, we also had a uh, an exchange uh, implementation, Active Directory, and a whole bunch of other applications. So we needed one generic platform uh, to us, both the Zenap VMs and all the other VMs as well. Um, so Zenap was just part of that particular branch office, or however yep. however much it fit in. Yeah, correct. It, it was just one of the applications that I needed to support, um, which um, in the end uh, led to a, a single cluster uh, design where all the VMs were just. Uh, from a VMware perspective, were 
uh, generic VMs. I, I didn't do as much customization as I normally would have. Um, and the, uh, the most customization I did on the storage platform, we used Citrix provisioning server uh, in combination with some local storage. Um, but that actually did, didn't make it into the design. So I had to reverse engineer my design to have all the Citrix cache disks on a SAM. Um, and those kind of customizations um, are just the ones I'm talking about that took me a lot of time to actually uh, get into the design and, and have them match the rest of the designer requirements. Okay, so that was really a case of having to um, rework all, all the documentation because it, the, the real the cliff that faces people you know who've they completed their their DCA and their DCD exams and they're suddenly feeling quite confident that they could do a successful defence right. and then suddenly they see this cliff and this cliff looks a thousand feet high and it's got the word documentation written up the side of it. I, I know that cliff. Uh, it, it took me. Um, I think it was more than a year from actually downloading the blueprint um, to actually opening it and reading it. Uh, so getting all my documentation uh, in, in the correct format uh, with the required length of the documents, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, it was a major mountain to climb and to overcome. That was scaring me. Are you? <laughs> Seriously, well, come on. It, <laughs> I don't want to scare anybody. I just want to warn them. Uh, well, don't don't ever combine two designs if you're not sure you're gonna make it. It took me way way more time, and obviously way more frustration. Um, I couldn't complete other parts as well as I would have uh, would have wanted. So um, just keep VCDX in mind. Work with all the requirements for VCDX, work with the documents as VCDX specifies them um, at the moment you're uh, working on a project. So I, I did a, a post-op on, uh, on VCDX. I took some existing designs, and uh, I, I never should have done that in hindsight. Yeah, I've actually started documenting customer projects of mine now in, in a fashion that I think I would would reuse in a, a, in a design submitted for the VCDX, e even though the the designs itself might not be the su submitted design. Uh, I'm kind of practicing on the the existing projects that I have with regards to how to document them and, and make sure that, as far as possible, I, I, I follow the guidelines given by the VCDX program. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to uh, get yourself familiar with all the VCDX requirements. Exactly. That's, that's what I was hoping as well. <laughs> well just, to kind of, just to kind of ask a Sorry. question about the, the Zen app thing again, if, if that's okay sure. if I go back to that. I remember we, sure. talked, we talked briefly in Barcelona about it right before your defense. You were a little too nervous to, to remember the conversation, but I remember you saying you disabled HA for, for these, um, these Zen app VMs because of uh, Zen app's uh, own HA. Yeah, sure. Uh, we disabled HA on a per-VM basis uh, for those Zenup VMs because we designed our Zenup platform um, to be able to um, tolerate uh, six Zenup VMs failing at once, so six VMs per physical host. So we have that redundancy in the Zenup platform itself already. 
so there was no need to actually have HA enabled for those VMs. It, it would just make uh, the recovery of those setup VMs way, way harder because they were booting from provisioning server. It would create a, kind of a bootstorm, uh, very short, very briefly, but that could impact availability for the already running VMs. Uh, okay, that was that was my follow-up, was would it hurt to have both at the same time, but yeah, since provisioning server, and the, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so we actually, um, we uh, discussed having multiple uh, provisioning servers, so we have two in this design. We actually discussed having like four or six, but that would make the Citrix design way, way more complicated because you have to have some kind of shared storage or accept the fact that provisioning server will take up uh, a lot of duplicate data, uh, a lot of duplicate space. I've got a quick follow-up question for, for you, Joe, before we before we talk, talk about other stuff. Um, sure. How... How detailed do you do you actually need to be in the kind of documentation you need to provide? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Uh, I um, I formed a study group with uh, three other Dutch guys uh, way back when I started VCDX, um, and we had discussions about how much detail. So I was the only one actually defending uh, from this study group. So they're all kind of um, judging VCDX by whatever I submitted. Um, and I had like 220 pages, and I had every single design document, uh, design decision documented. Mm -hmm. So even up to the level of which version of the distributed fee switch are you going to use, uh, I documented, I defended, I uh, had something on paper for that. Uh, and my study group uh, mates, they weren't so sure if that was actually the required amount of detail. It, it might have, it could have been less maybe, but we're not sure. Okay, so it, you don't have any kind of guidelines regarding that. It's a, you, you're basically just telling us what you did. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard. I don't, I don't have any guidelines. Um, so I, I, I think the level of detail I went into is too much. It, it could have been less. Um, but I, I like to be thorough. Uh, it, it's the way I work. It's the way I work at a customer's project, in a customer's project. Uh, so I never got the of doing it. Uh, I, that's a personal choice. I feel comfortable with. If they only uh, this kind of detail in their designs, usually their feature project. Um, and if they don't don't add that kind of detail, they shouldn't add it in VCDX. You're you're going to uh, draw attention to yourself, and your defense questions will be awful. Yeah. Okay. So you think in in the in the case of too much detail, you can kind of put yourself in a corner where you where you can't answer a question. Yeah, absolutely. I I, um, I added some details about the Exchange and Zenap uh, implementation to my design because they were relevant for the choices I made. Uh, and during my defense, questions were asked about Exchange, about Zenap. <laughs> so you need to be aware that everything that you add to your design is, is fair game for your panel. 
exactly. So, okay, so, you, so basically you should try to, uh, in your design, you should only include the kind of items or the kind of uh, infrastructure that you're actually familiar enough with to be able to answer questions regarding. Yeah, that or um, uh, you, you need to uh, actually update yourself on that knowledge. So if you're not sure you'll know enough about this, uh, a subject when, um, when your defense is, is scheduled, you don't, you don't want to add it to your design. You just want to skip it. Yeah, exactly. The reason I'm asking that is I, I have a project in, let's say, the next year or so that uh, might be a good, good candidate to base a VCDX uh, design submission on. But the problem is that it's, it, it'll, it'll host uh, a, a custom-made application uh, cluster for a, a local company that they're actually developing it themselves. Uh, and it might actually be based on whatever it, by the looks of it right now, it's based on Java. And, and if I get questions regarding the, the actual Java implementation or design bit in the, in the, uh, in the application layer, I'm not going to do very well. <laughs> yeah, obviously, you're, you're not a programmer. And exactly. I'll agree, Java sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, there are developers who like it. I don't know why, but <laughs> sure. again, I'm no developer, as I've said before. So, so that, that uh, it's a tricky question. Uh, I, I think you should add uh, some level of, of information and some level of detail regarding the application, because uh, else you're just going to design a, a very narrow platform. You have to have some kind of mission critical application, some kind of application that'll require you to make some decisions. Yeah, sure. I, 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 the thing I thought about was I could al always include something about uh, the, let's say, the IOPS we know that the application generates and why we decided to use a specific storage solution. Right. But I wouldn't want to be adding details on the actual application itself and how it, that works internally. You would al always... My, my thought is that you should only add the information that actually makes sense to make uh, a design decision based upon. Yeah, I agree. I agree. In, instead of kind of broadening the horizon, and you might get into trouble with uh, with application-specific details that you, that aren't really relevant to the design phase itself. Sure. So, so, so two points here. Um, you know, the, um, the general overview of what kind of application will run on the environment, what kind of customer it is, it's, it's not relevant for VCDX. Mm -hmm. So uh, just leave it out. On the other hand, uh, you do have the, um, the flexibility and the room to actually substitute any specific application with, uh, I don't know, some black box application. Uh, you're allowed to... Uh, anonymize that part of your design or uh, make it generic in, in such a way that uh, your panel doesn't know which specific application is running. But then you have to know specific details about IOPS, about memory usage, etc., etc. You have to know technical details. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. 
and I guess also constraints of a given application design. So if you knew that it was a three-tier application that is particular that you could say for the cases of the design is sensitive to latency between uh, tiers A and B, that you would then do a DRS affinity rule for something like that, so you could demonstrate knowledge of DRS advanced configuration. Yeah, I, you should consider adding uh, even uh, fictitious applications if you know you're good at uh, these kind of uh, decisions. So if you're good at DRS, add some weird application to show off that you're good at DRS. <laughs> uh, there's shame in actually giving the panel a, a delicate nudge in the right direction to actually get subject you're good at. Yeah, sure. It makes a lot of sense to do that, actually. You want... You, you wouldn't want to go that far and defend your design without actually trying uh, whatever you can to actually uh, focus the, the uh, panelists to where, towards the, the, your knowledgeable areas. Of course, you, you, you want to do that. Yeah, and, and I think you, you even have to pay specific uh, attention to those kind of little details uh, in preparing for your uh, VCDX application and defense, because that will demonstrate your ability to um, actually do the same with customers. And I think that's one of the uh, aspects they're actually scoring on. Uh, so the ability to take control of the conversation with the customer or your defense panel um, and get to some points you want to make or demonstrate what what stuff is good in your design instead of just following whatever the customer is saying. Yeah, sure. But, I, but I, I would think that in most cases you would actually be more comfortable doing that with an actual customer you know uh, as opposed to a panelist of guys who, who are specifically there to judge you. <laughs> and you know probably know, know who they are anyway, uh, which might add some, some actual uh, more might add some more problems with regards to the actual discussions, I guess, but you need to, you need to be able to, to communicate it anyway. So. Sure, I agree. And Yo, here's, a, here's an interesting one. I'm sure this happens to you at customers from time to time. You go in and they can't really feed you any requirements. <laughs> it happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, every time. <laughs> so you could almost... In that case, I wonder if it would be acceptable in the defense to be able to say, customer could not give me any requirements. I designed something that works, yeah, 90% of the time for a smaller shop or, or something like that. No, you're, you're not even going to make it past the application phase. That design will simply be not uh, be accepted for defense. Okay. You, you need to... What if you were to take a, an iterative process? So if you said, right, this is, you know, uh, because the customer didn't know what their requirements were, we deployed a proof of concept, um, took this sort of information in and actually helped try and define their their requirements from a technical point of view from there. Or is that not really the sort of thing that would work? Uh, it might because um, during that process you're actually showing um, your qualities as a design expert. So it, it might be feasible. I'm not sure if, if, if it'll be accepted, but it does allow you to show um, you're capable of nudging your customer in the right direction. And, and that's ultimately what VCDX is about. 
helping your customer, being able to help your customer. Okay, uh, I, I guess that's enough scary VCDX stuff. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of frying my brain a bit here, but it's it's uh, it's good to talk to someone who's actually done it and and specifically being being able to ask questions about it. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are interested in. In doing that, I, I, as far as I, I see, Joe, you, you're launching a new website as well with uh, what I think has something like that in mind, or am I wrong there? No, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm launching vcdx101.com. It, 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 I'm planning to create a website where all of these kind of tips and tricks are presented in such a way that your brain will not get fried. Okay, I, I guess that's too late for me, but there, there's probably hope for some other people, I guess. I, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Just make Possibly sure not fried, just slow-cooked a bit. And Christian, make sure you don't include an HP Wi-Fi in your, uh, in your design. I, I might actually do that, but that's only to prove that I'm able to wield a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> Have you sent it into willitblend.com yet? No, but I think I'll actually try that. I'm in, I'm in my kitchen right now. <laughs> I wonder if uh, Will will do it, but I, I guess not. Yeah, it's definitely one of the few points I wish that uh, VSoup had video, because you would actually be able to like, see Christian destroy a Hewlett-Packard Wi-Fi point live on, on the show. We might actually be able to do that. <laughs> we might do a special. <laughs> Make, making V-Soup from a Wi-Fi. <laughs> has, has anyone got round to blending an iPad Mini yet? Uh, obviously, the, the iPad Mini just just been released. Um, is it anyone sort of decided it's something they need, if only to destroy? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't destroy one because I wouldn't see the purpose in purchasing one in the first place. No, it doesn't. It doesn't do it for you. I mean, the, the price is still, I mean, the price is still high enough that you might as well just dig in your pocket a little deeper and go with the bigger one. True, true. I mean, obviously not being an Apple fanboy, um, I, I went down the, uh, the Nexus route and I've got a, a Nexus 7 and I love it. I think it's a great little piece of hardware. Um, you know, I can jump onto a VPN and join desktops if I have to. I've even done... Uh, product demos from it. Yeah, but that's going to work on an iPad as well. Oh, true. Except that this is about a third of the cost. Right. Yeah, that, that's the point I'm trying to make. It, it's way cheaper to do it on a, a, a random Android device and the Nexus if you're lucky because I think that's the, the best Android device, uh, Android tablet out there right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the when they do the one with a slightly bigger screen could be interesting. Um, but they certainly hit the right price point with uh, with these ones. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, prior to that, I, I had an HP touchpad and it was great, but it bricked itself. Um, I, I switched to something else. Yeah, I, I own the Nexus as well. I, I've got an iPad One, um, which haven't really seen much usage. So I'm kind of in the uh, in the undecided corner, uh, with uh, as with regards to tablets all over, uh, or in general, to be to be honest, I, uh, my iPad One has been laying around here in a drawer for a couple of years, and it, it doesn't get much much usage. But then again, my iPhone, I, I use that a lot. Uh, 
for everything now. I basically use that m much more now than I do with my MacBook, actually. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually swinging it the other way. I, I bought a MacBook Air a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm using it way, way more than my iPad because it's it just works better. I can get stuff done way faster and without actually throwing my iPad at a window. Yeah, I, I use my MacBook Air instead of the iPad, sure. Yep. I use yep. the iPhone even more, so I don't know. It's uh, I find the iPad, it's too big to look around. And, uh, and uh, basically, if I need to bring something that size, I could just as easily use my MacBook Air instead. I agree. So I, I've been using my uh, Android phone. I have a, a Galaxy S3. Um, but since VMworld Europe, some guy from VMware nicked it and actually flashed some Horizon Mobile stuff onto it. Um, so it's it's kind of in a in a developer phase right now, um, up up to a point where I can't really use it anymore because it's laggy and slow. But hey, it does run Horizon Mobile. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty. I'm going to publish some videos about uh, my phone uh, very shortly. I'm, I'm trying to uh, find the right uh, way to record it. So in a, in a couple of weeks, uh, check out my website. Uh, I hope to have some videos about my phone with Horizon Mobile. Yeah, sounds cool. I must, I've seen sort of part of Citrix's answer to the uh, um, mobile app control uh, sort of concept. And they're doing things like delivering, um, oh, what do they call it? Is it mail at home or something like that? Where it's actually it's a native mail application, but it's deployed through the various the Citrix sort of infrastructure. They use it the web gateway or something like that. Netscaler, um, I guess. Yeah, yeah. you know, specific sort of corporate corporate mail app, but it is still running natively, uh, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, VMware is actually doing, I think, something comparable with the iPhone, where they're using some kind of thin app clone or whatever to actually run native iOS apps, but fully protected and fully controlled by the organization. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it'll be interesting how that works out. It also in the, in the same same kind of notion that now that. Uh, uh, one of the key end-user uh, computing guys at VMware recently left and, and, and uh, started with uh, Mobile Iron, I guess. So. Oh, okay. It'll be interesting to see what what happens with that as well. But uh, it definitely seems that the um, the end-user stuff, you know, a lot of the major companies are going in the same sort of direction. I mean, you know, VMware decided to write Project Octopus, whereas Citrix just took took the easy way out or easy way in and, and purchase share file, which pretty much does the same sort of thing. Um, and saw I saw some fairly recent demos of that at the weekend, and I was pretty impressed actually. Um, you know, it takes your Dropbox functionality, adds a little bit more, adds a bit more control. Nice ways of being able to send files to and receive files from people without a share file account. I thought it was that latter one that kind of was useful because I don't think Dropbox you can upload into a Dropbox account without a Dropbox account. You, you can do that through a web. Uh, I, I had that set up on my own site actually, so I could actually upload files to my own Dropbox account from from wherever I was. 
Yeah, but you you have to be logged in to do that, right? No, uh, that was an an anonymous upload feature that collected all the files and put them in a given uh, folder inside my Dropbox. So anyone could upload to it. All right. Uh, I think this was doing it with a bit more control so that I could say, for example, (laughs) email you a link saying, you know, please don't send me malware. Yeah. Um, And you could literally just web interface and drop the file in there. Um, with the authentication controlled within that link. So it's a little bit like, I think, when you give out a a private Amazon link where there's sort of a a key or a hash. Generate a one-off link for a specific upload, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like that. I thought that was something that's actually got some use in it. A bit of flexibility as to whether you deploy it. uh, You you can have it solely in their managed cloud or you can have uh, on-premise well, the odd, odd bit was that you can have your storage on-premise, but the control for it, and so the authentication piece, is still controlled by ShareFile, um, which I suppose you have to have if you're going to have global authentication and globally available authentication. Um, but it's not quite your own Dropbox, hmm. because you're still, you don't really control the, the end-to-end experience. That's interesting. And whereas Octopus is supposed to be pretty much something you control from end to end, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, Does that have ways of federating to external providers? I, 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 don't, I don't know how much those who've been playing around with it can actually talk about it. Um, there's not much. <laughs> I, I much. haven't looked at actually doing uh, federation with it, no. But uh, the deployment is internal completely if you want it to be, so... Uh, and it taps into Active Directory and whatever, but I don't know how you would do federation with it. It might be possible. I I just simply don't know. Okay, yeah, I mean it, that that would seem, seem to me the, you know, the way that people if people want to federate to cloud storage or you know any of the third party big storage providers for availability, um, but still maintain some of the overall control. Yeah. I, I would actually be pretty surprised if, if uh, Octopus doesn't, or Horizon Data, as it's now called, uh, doesn't support oh, like Federation in some way. But I, I haven't tested it, so I, I can't really tell. Yeah, well, I suppose the question would be, who's it going to federate to? Because yeah. I can't see VMware wanting to send too much money Amazon's way. Yeah, sure. And they're not going to send it to Azure. And it would seem relatively unlikely that you'd want to host it on Google. It'll be open stack, no worries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it seems that this has been the um, after VMworld, everyone's attentions has turned to the, uh, the you know the storage side of things, particularly from the conferencing side, or, or as uh, I put down in my show notes, SootRage. Uh, um, so you know, what is the latest in SootRage these days? Mm, seems to be a lot of startups, a lot of new startups, and they're all focused on flash SSD somehow. Yeah, yeah, there, there seems yep. to be various different ways that you can slice and dice a, a flash drive, different sort of firmwares you can use, different ways of managing the data, um, whether you're using it as a cache or as part of the whole storage. Um, everyone seems to have their own take, and they all uniquely think it's the best way of doing it. Um you know, I guess time time will tell. The market itself, I think, will uh, will dictate rather than a uh, a flashy sales pitch. Um, 
and you know sometimes I think the concepts that they push around they use a lot of words but they don't always necessarily know what those words mean the, the amount of time I've seen big data being used to refer to people with more than 10 terabytes of space seems a little bit odd to me <laughs> so I, I, I'll share something that's fun though uh, I, I got to play around with a couple of those uh, Fusion I.O. cards uh, in some new HP blades generation 8 blades uh, a week or so ago and I gotta tell you guys that thing is quick yeah it's it's insane insane yeah I mean, I, I didn't actually time it because I, I, I uh, was in a kind of a rush. I, I was working from home uh, trying to get uh, uh, four new VMs set up for a company that I, we were working for. Uh, and for now, it's just, uh, it was just setting those up as local data stores on the two blades and, and creating two VMs on each of them. Uh, for now, and we'll try to combine combine it with IO Turbine uh, to get it to use to use Diffusion IOs as a, a cache in front of their uh, iSCSI based storage. But for now, it's just a a, a local storage setup uh, with Fusion IO, and I I think it took about twenty five seconds to provision a new Windows Server two thousand and eight R two uh, from a template. And the, the template was actually located on the iSCSI storage. Wow. Wow. It's, what happened was I, I provisioned, started one, and I switched over to the other host and started cre creating a new one. And clicked through and put in the customization template and everything, just click next and generate, and then switched back to the other host, and it was, it was finished, done, <laughs> into the domain, rebooted, everything was just set up. And that... Wow. It's insanely quick. Yeah, but it's, it, the price tag to match. Uh, the price tag is rich. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I do like some of the um, uh, other ways of, of using Fusion IO cards. Uh, I know those guys from Nutanix mm -hmm. are uh, actually using them inside their blades as well. Okay. Um, as a tier as a one caching mechanism, I think, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and they're using SSDs and SAS drives or, or SATA drives um, as uh, lower tiers. So I, I very much like that concept um, for companies that are just about ready to purchase a SAM but don't have the budget yet or uh, just simply need the performance. Yeah, that, that's the kind of the case here because the... The customer had an existing uh, HPP uh, HPP two thousand iSCSI storage unit, yeah, uh, and and then they they uh, uh, one of their um, partners came with a new application for them, and they came with some pretty insane I/O requests, mm. uh, um, which their storage wasn't even close to being able to to provide them with. Yeah, but come on, it's a P P two thousand. That's like a Walmart sand. Yeah, yeah. Surely putting a IO um, Fusion IO on something like that is like putting Gucci shoes on a fat bird. Um, <laughs> it's still fat bird. Yeah, well, it all depends on the angle you're taking the photographs from. Yeah, 
<laughs> and that was the kind of the case here because they needed the performance, but they don't need the big storage. So right. the the idea here is to use the uh, Fusion IO cards as as uh, uh, a cache for the SQL uh, queries, right. and just have all of the data on the iSCSI storage. Uh, oh, okay. That's an interesting way of of uh, actually. Uh, using that cache because I, I had a customer uh, yesterday today. It was actually some um, fault tolerant VMs on top of the vSphere storage appliance. But that got me thinking: if you use Fusion I/O cards in combination with um, the vSphere storage appliance, yep. you won't need any shared storage at all. You you just use the local storage of your physical servers in the VSAs. Right. Yeah. I think um, Fusion IO have actually got their own solution for that, or were looking at it. I seem to remember reading an article that they were trying to do some form of software layer to sit across multiple Fusion IO cards, so that you could potentially fill a server with them or multiple servers with them, and then grid those up into some sort of Uber software VSA type thing. That is interesting, though. I, I kind of like that. Those kinds of solutions. Yeah, it'd be quite flexible, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the case in, in, for this customer was actually that replacing their storage with something that was able to give them the IOPS they needed would be way more expensive than actually buying two new blades and putting some Fusion IO cards in them. Yeah. And okay. that also makes uh, expands their cluster from a three-host to a five-host cluster. So it gives them some extra benefits as well. That's kind of cool. I suppose that you know that really is the the equivalent of going back to my aforementioned large lady in Gucci shoes. It's the equivalent of the from above MySpace shot, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you made it look good, but only in a certain direction. Yeah, and it's got to be taken in the bathroom usually. <laughs> Make sure you close the toilet. There's. Uh... <laughs> Oh, Christian, just to, just to ask a question about specifics, if you can answer me, what when you say crazy I.O. requirements, what can you give me an example? Uh, well, the thing is, uh, we didn't get any specific IOPS requests or requirements. What we got from the application vendor was that the SQL server needs a RAID this on that and RAID that on this and whatever and X amount of drives. But they couldn't actually specifically say how much IOPS they actually required for each of the roles, being it uh, the log files or the database certain files itself or whatever. So basically what we told our client was that throw these Fusion IO cards in there and that'll shut them up. And it did. <laughs> Sometimes it won't. <laughs> uh, this time it did, trust because me. What they gave you sounds like one of those... Those ancient requirements created maybe ten years before. Exactly. And yeah. it's the That's only way it's supported and blah blah blah. Yeah, I've run across quite a few vendors that way that it yeah. seems now, I just called them and said, if we put these in, I'll guarantee you you'll never ask again what IOS you're you're gonna be requiring from the existing storage because you won't even hit it. And they were kind of, they didn't quite understand what I was talking about, so they said prove it to us, and we did, so. And also, let's hope that 
Let's hope that nothing goes wrong in the process because that will be the first thing the finger is pointed at. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I know it will, but the client is on my side here, and they understood what we were doing. So they they signed off on us being kind of ballsy and telling the uh, the application vendor where to stick their IOPS. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So talking about storage, uh, you we were having a conversation. You were having some fun with VSA VSAs earlier. <laughs> yeah, uh, I. Uh, well I troubleshooted a, um, a VSA setup, a two-node cluster, um, with, uh, I think, or was Dell servers, eight disks, 15K SAS, um, and they're running four fault-tolerant VMs on top of that. Um, and it, it just uh, worked the entire environment every time a fault-tolerant VM got switched over to a new host. Um, so I had a lot of fun actually troubleshooting via a, a colleague who was on site. Um, and let me let me tell you that I, I've never seen that kind of setup. I, I wouldn't actually think about using fault tolerant VMs on top of the VSA. That it seems weird to have some robo solution run fault tolerant VMs. What was their, their use case for these these VMs? Um, I think it was some industrial uh, setup where some uh, PLCs were uh, sending data to a server and the server communicated with a client VM, which was also fault tolerant, to actually dis display the status of those PLCs um, to monitor okay. and, and troubleshoot those uh, industrial applications. I'm not sure what was behind their servers itself. Um, and their use case was actually kind of funny because they were trying to avoid having to buy a second license for their application. So uh, actually buying two Dell REC servers with fault tolerance with the VSA was way, way, way cheaper than uh, buying a second license for their application. Okay, so the application was Oracle. No, no, I <laughs> you, you would you would say that, wouldn't you? Uh, but but no, <laughs> never a show without some, saying something about Oracle. <laughs> yeah, some of those industrial sort of SCADA type things. Yeah, it where, was SCADA actually. Their licensing costs are obscene. Yeah, they're, they're they incredibly expensive, and whilst. As you say, some of the, the machines involved are not particularly um, powerful, so they only only need that single CPU. Um, there, because their availability is linked with a nuclear power station or something generally speaking quite important and, and angry. That if if you do need that availability, otherwise you've got some mechanical process that isn't being monitored, and if it's not being monitored, then it could explode and people could die. So I suppose that's where fault tolerance is probably quite a useful thing. But so far, it's one of the few that you know. That's that's. I've I've got three fingers left on on one hand of of use of good use cases for uh, fault tolerance. It, it was actually my first uh, client where fault tolerance was being used in like two years. I I had seen uh, a hospital uh, testing fault tolerance uh, two three years ago, and that was the only other one, uh, other client using fault tolerance. So the use cases are are pretty slim. 
you see use cases in the future when you have multiple vCPUs possible? Yeah, as, as soon as multi-vCPUs is, is going to be supported, um, and they're actually going to do something about the insane amount of bandwidth that is required for some applications to uh, for the VLOC, uh, VLOC step stuff, then it'll it'll be a broader use case. Is that just going to wait for the maturity of um, high-speed interlinks, you know, as we move? It's come to the stage where, you know, 10G is getting pretty readily available. In fact, you know, the majority of places, if they're not deployed 10G, they're looking to it. Um, people are now going, well, actually, 10G might not be enough. We need to go to 40G for using Finiband connections. Or, you know, people are even knocking around the idea of 100 gigabit Ethernet. So is it just the technology that's waiting for the, the infrastructure to support it? I'm guessing yeah. it's a bit of both, actually. You, 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 both, you, you need to both drive the bandwidth availability up, but you also need to reduce the amount of bandwidth needed at the same time. And then at some point, those two axes will actually intervene with each other, and you might have a sweet spot where it actually works. Yeah, it seems reasonable. Yeah, combine that with, with VXLAN or whatever, and you can possibly do it over a different sites, then you might have actually have a use cases that are really interesting. Yeah. Instead of replicating your VMs, you just cluster them with FT uh, and have them continuously protected wherever they might be, and you can access both of them at the same time. That's interesting. Hmm. Yes. That's interesting. Give me the bandwidth now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in, you know if we have this similar conversation in two, three years' time, when people are thinking, yeah, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm going to deploy 40G, or in four, five years' time, when people are going to be deploying 100G, um, that I'm sure you know, the amount of bandwidth that we use is going to increase um, accordingly. You know, if you think um, gigabit Ethernet was actually first around in about 99, I think. Uh, um, it was you know, a good 13 years ago, and it's taken, it probably took five of those years before it had mainstream adoption across the enterprise. Uh, so whether the, the next sort of big speed jumps from that are going to take, take some time to, get, to kick in as well. Yeah, and then people start deploying G and we're all screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I. <laughs> well, with that in mind, well, with that in mind, let's wrap up uh, VSoup for this um, this time around. It was a second try, but I think it came out a little bit better this time. Thanks a lot, uh, you, uh, for coming on, uh, and congrats again on VCDX 101. Thanks, dude. Thanks. <laughs> and um, as usual, you can check us out on Stitcher vsoup.net or iTunes. Thanks a lot for listening.